Welcome to the H1B Guy podcast. This is Stamp It Out Q&A episode four. The Stamp It Out Q&A series is a series documenting U.S. employment-based immigrants' personal stories. This unedited audio-only version originally aired on November 11th, 2020 on the H1B Guy channel on YouTube. I had the privilege of hosting my good friend, the brilliant Christine Mikolajuk, for the Stamp It Out Q&A 4. You'll hear the statement, the worst way to come to America is on merit and skill, which has become synonymous with the H1B Guy and Christine. The H1B Guy podcast is proudly sponsored by RecruiterNetworks.com, the smart solution for digital permads since 2001. Recruiter Networks saves you time and money, minimal labor management, and flat job post pricing that provides recruitment websites in 1,024 major U.S. metro areas. Their services include automated certified screenshots ready for upload and on-demand storage for life. RecruiterNetworks.com. Tell them the H-1B guy sent you. Okay, guys, the H1B guy here. And today, the H1B guy live, stamp it out for a QA with discussions on immigration, election results, and more. But before we get started, I'd like to ask you, if you haven't already, to please subscribe to the H1B guy channel here on YouTube. It helps me to produce more content like this for you. I also wanted to mention the H1B Guy offers a variety of consulting services. If I can provide you peace of mind by helping you bridge the gap between your employer and your immigration attorney, please reach out. I'd love to hear how I can help. I wanted to wish a very happy, happy Veterans Day to all of the veterans that are out there today, November 11th, 2020. I also wanted to mention that my father served in the Air Force during Vietnam, so very happy Veterans Day to you, and that both of my grandfathers were also veterans in World War II. So if you see a veteran today, please thank one. Today, I'm joined by someone who does not need an introduction, Christine Mikolajou, and she can be found at at C-M-I-K-O. L-A-J-U-K on Twitter. You've most likely read her immigration story on Medium, and maybe you've seen her interview on Tucker Carlson. Christine, I'm just so excited to have you join me today. Thank you and welcome. Thank you so much, H1B Guy. I'm really glad to be on your show. Um, and happy Veterans Day to everyone out there that's um, commemorating the war and all the great people who've served. That's right. So. Uh, Got to remember what they fought for, which is, you know, <laughs> as, as Americans, we always say our freedom, right? Um, so today what we're going to do is we'll do our traditional Stamp It Out Q&A. Uh, Christine and I have a variety of questions and topics that we're going to cover. Um, if you're watching, I'd like to ask you to go ahead and like this video here on YouTube. It helps with the live stream algorithm. If you have any questions or comments that you'd like for us to discuss at the end of the Q&A, 
I'd ask that you please post those in the comment section and we'll get to them um, at the end. So uh, without, uh, I guess, any further delay, we're just going to jump right into it. Uh, you know, I know your story has been well documented, uh, but can you tell me how you got to where you are now? Sure. Uh, it's a bit of a long story, I guess. Um, and I'm I'm sort of dialing in or calling in from London in the UK, which is where I've lived since the start of 2019. Uh, basically, I came to the States from Canada in gosh, 2003. I was 17. Uh, I got into Harvard, which was a dream come true. Uh, my own parents were immigrants from Poland to Canada. Uh, so I had that experience there uh, growing up. But I was so excited to come to the US. And, and a lot of people, you know, they come to the US for college and they discover, you know, college and all the great things that come with that. But for me, it was as much about the excitement of learning as it was about discovering the US. And so, so for the four years that I was there, I had you know really patient roommates that explained what America was all about. Um, I traveled a lot. I, I, you know, I, I worked on the Hill um, and I just discovered a fantastic country. And I, it was the first time in my life where I really felt like I was in a place where I was, everything was on the right wavelength. Um, but sort of towards the end of that experience, the sort of the shadow creeps in of what needs to happen for you to be able to stay in the US. And so I made the call to go uh, to Oxford and get a good degree there. And then with the hopes of coming back through the private sector. So I spent five years working in management consulting at a leading firm and finally got them to wrangle me a transfer. And I, I moved to Florida and I was with, uh, with the company in Miami, which was a great experience. Um, but there, you know, every time you join a company, they don't want to sponsor you a green card until you've been there a while. So lo and behold, another year passed and then another year where they were trying one way or another way. And in the end, that company just said there was no real way for them to do it. I managed to get a job in banking and had a sort of TN visa. And, you know, again, it was another year and another year and trying one way and trying another way. And finally, they said, well, the only way for us to do this to let you stay and apply for a green card is if you go abroad, spend a year abroad, and thereby be eligible to come in on an L1A, which is an intercompany transfer visa. I did that. I lived here for a year and went back to the States. And finally, finally, and this is 2017, um, the company was able to apply for a green card application for me in the managerial category. And that was probably one of the most stressful times of my life. I started, couldn't sleep, lost my hair. Um, and instead of getting a good inkling back, we got a request for further evidence, more further evidence was provided. And then in March of 2018, we received a denial notice. Um, mm -hmm. And this wasn't just me. By now I was married uh, to a wonderful Brit who mm -hmm. <laughs> joined me in my sort of American dream. Um, and uh, yeah, when we received that news, it was absolutely devastating. I mean, I'd been at it for 14 years and the company wouldn't appeal, um, The which is sort of understandable. And I was, I was given the opportunity to just reapply, but by then, mm -hmm it was clear that you know, doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different outcome is a definition of insanity. Right. And so we made the very, very difficult and frankly heartbreaking decision uh, for me anyway to, um, mm -hmm. to, 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 yeah. Was that, was that at the end of 2018 or was that right after, I guess the decision came down in March, you were kind of weighing what your options were. What was, what was your strategy at that point? 
I, to be perfectly honest, that entire period is a, is a bit of a blur yeah. uh, because it was so distressing, mm -hmm. uh, you know, not least because it had uh, repercussions on, on my husband's ability to work in the U.S. And by the way, he's an engineer with an MBA, right. um, so I think he'd be able to say in his own right. Um, but, you know, and I, I, I kind of, I had to sort of outsource my logical thinking at that point and really relied on, on a lot of great and kind people who were able to sort of shepherd me through that. Um, mm -hmm. So in the end, I sort of stayed on, uh, you know, to sort of to wrap things up um, and, and see things through. And, and mm -hmm. yeah, I, yeah, we moved, uh, my husband moved midway through 2018. I joined him at the end of 2018, start of 2019 here in the UK. Mm -hmm. And I've been mm -hmm. here since. Mm -hmm. If um, you could go back and give yourself some advice before you decided to come to the U.S., what would you tell your 17-year-old self? <laughs> that is a really hard question uh, because, you know, today, given where things are now, where, I mean, green cards based on merit are, are virtually impossible, um, it would seem like a no-brainer to say, have an exit strategy, don't count on mm -hmm. staying. And and that is mm -hmm. frankly today what I think international students who come to the US should be told. Don't expect mm -hmm. to stay. You know, you're gonna be going to school alongside Americans, um, but you are in a very different situation. Do not, you know, expect that the things that got you here will will uh keep you here. Mm -hmm. Um I am not as, as cynical as say, you know, <laughs> marry your buddy because that's the only way that you're gonna stay. Right. Um, but that would be that would be my advice based on today. But but back then, I mean, you know, in a lot of ways, I don't regret everything that I did because if I hadn't come to the states and I wouldn't have met all the wonderful people that I've met, I wouldn't have found a place that I really call home that that mm -hmm. I find you know important and meaningful to the world. Um, but I would say don't trust the system um, mm. because it is in fact organized to keep people like me out. Um, and don't, you know, trust that the system has, has sort of your best interests or in fact, America's best interest at heart. It's simply a bureaucracy, mm -hmm. a mindless, faceless one. And <laughs> the best you can do is arm yourself. And so mm -hmm. I think I told myself to be much more cynical, much more aggressive, you know, threaten lawsuits right and left because mm -hmm. so many institutions, you know, especially in, increasingly nowadays, it, it's all about litigation and it's just, it, yeah, you can't, you can't really trust that things will work out if you do things the right way. Um, yeah. more aggressive than that and more litigious than that. Mm -hmm. Well, it's interesting because you, you hit on a couple points and, you know, where I find that you're unique is that a lot of foreign nationals come for the advanced degree, right? I mean, mm -hmm. you're talking about you're we're in an undergrad program mm -hmm. and so you know you're talking about even at a younger age entering into the u.s technically still you know a minor right at 17 based on on u.s law and you know i think the other thing is you mentioned the lawsuit and and that's what is really crazy about is all about it all is it's not only the time that was spent but the money and money that you spent, your employer spent. And, and I think that that's the thing that a lot of people don't understand mm -hmm. when you start looking at, you know, high skilled individuals such as yourself who have received denials when mm -hmm. it comes to adjudication, adjustment of status. Mm 
Mm-hmm. And the time and money that went into that, right? All the no, the number of L1Bs, right? <laughs> or L, L1A as well, right? Um, and then just the expense of an employer to go through the perm labor process, I can tell you the time and the money that's dedicated to that is is pretty crazy for at the end of the day, it's decided by a bureaucrat. And I think that to me, that's, you know, a couple of the points that you made that a lot of folks don't really fully understand. And to go back and tell yourself that, and you see a lot of what's being reported in the news recently around the the dwindling number of international students coming to the U.S., some of that associated with the travel ban, of course, some of that associated with that that F1 interpretation of Mm on-site classes, right? Mm -hmm. But as a whole, you're seeing those numbers drastically drop. And, and you know, you mentioned Harvard, uh, alumnus of Harvard. Harvard was one of the first to file a lawsuit on that ban. And, yeah. you know, you know that's because, listen, a lot of money is at stake for these institutions and universities. The international student collects a hefty price for them. And so, you know, that's a lot of the untold about the cycle. Right. Mm-hmm. And folks like you that get caught into it. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I will say in, in sort of in in their defense, um, I don't know that how much money they got from me because I got a, I, I got a grants um, and financial mm-hmm. aid. I mean, again, I mean, how amazing is it that right. Americans, you know, open up their their wallets to to right. help people like me go to, to the best schools in the world. But I mean, I, I would say that you know, institutions like Harvard, it, it's wonderful that they came to the defense of their students, but I think there's a lot more that they could do and they should do. I'm there, mm-hmm. you know, in, in my day, I, I, it would have been amazing if, um, if, if there had been, you know, lawyers um, that could have been consulted for students because, you know, a lot of people say, well, don't you just know when you're coming to the U.S. that this is what it's going to be like? Uh, and, and people say, well, you know, if you're coming to the U.S., why don't you do a sort of cost benefit analysis and then, you know, just decide to go to Australia. Mm. The truth is, is that if you, you know, America, it's, it's, it's sort of foundational idea is as a country of immigrants. And so it is mm-hmm. completely counterintuitive to tell yourself that you won't be welcome, especially if you feel like you're bringing sort of talent and capabilities. I mean, if there are people who want to give you a job and people who want to give you a place at a great university, then, you know, you, you think like, well, gosh, the country, the country wants me. Um, but in fact it doesn't. And, you know, I think that the, you know, the kids who are crazy enough for, to, to come to the U S from far flung places are also the ones that believe that, you know, they'll be able to make it somehow. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that's how they, they kind of get trapped. So I think that employers and universities should do a lot more to either, you know, make sure students know what they're getting into, um, Mm -hmm. or, you know, fight for better immigration policies that can allow Mm -hmm. to stay. Right. Yeah. That's, uh, I mean, I think that's, that's what this channel was one of the reasons I started it was to talk about those changes and how necessary they are because the cycle is never ending. And, you know, we'll continue to see stories like yours. I mean, there was the Dr. Pranav Singh story. There was another story that's been circulating around the medical doctor in Detroit that's looking Mm -hmm. to go to Canada. And, you know, I told the story of my really good friend who moved to Australia and, you know, 
I will never leave this country, but if I were an immigrant here in the high-tech space and I'm weighing my options between Canada and Australia, no, no offense to your home country, but <laughs> I, th I think I'd prefer the weather in Australia a little more. That's just me. That's just preference. That's fair. That's fair. You know? but, are not but, for everyone. <laughs> no, um, I, I'm, I'm a Southerner uh, born and raised and I don't think that the anything below 32 is really meant for for me, but mm -hmm. you know, but, I I digress. <laughs> no, no, and I you know, I think that's the thing. People people say also something I hear is, well, why don't you just go somewhere else? You'll be fine somewhere else. And and you know, I'm I'm very lucky that that is absolutely true. I'm you know, yeah. the UK is wonderful, and I'm I'm very lucky that I can live and work here. Uh, you know, Canada is fantastic. They're they're there are plenty of great alternatives, but mm -hmm. you know, at the end of the day, nothing nothing compares to to America in terms of scale and vibrancy and opportunity right. and energy and and of course, you know, there are there are plenty of difficulties and 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 flaws and and debates that are happening. But you know, America was really the place that I I felt like I was home. Um, and yeah. it's a country I love and always will. I think, I think it comes down to it's the desire to be a part of something bigger than you. And I think that that's, you know, a lot of times we talk about this American dream and what, mm -hmm. what that is. And I think it really comes down to just that, that desire, right? That just the, the opportunity that's granted to us here and that freedom and, and it, it fuels that fire. Mm -hmm. So. And, and that's a bit that the difficulty there, I think is, is you're kind of leading this parallel life because when you are stuck in a 80 year backlog, like so mm -hmm. many when you are in, and I think this is something that a lot of Americans don't know, but every time you even slightly shift your job description or even get promoted, you are putting your underlying application in jeopardy because suddenly things need to be adjusted and changed. Right. So you are really, really stuck in where mm -hmm. you are. And any little move can, again, jeopardize things. Right. And so the the trouble with that is that you're surrounded by all this opportunity and freedom and, and, you know, all this energy, but you yourself are frozen in time in a lot of ways. And so what I suggest to people is that the trade-off isn't between, you know, America, its opportunities and its freedoms versus somewhere else. It's actually, you know, that isn't accessible to you as mm -hmm. a lot of the time you are certain. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, your 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 opportunities are, are, are very much circumscribed by you know the rules of your visa. Mm -hmm. them. Um, so really, if the choice is between that and somewhere else, uh, you know the math gets a little bit different because you aren't choosing between the American dream and something else. Mm -hmm. You're choosing the merit-based immigrant life, yeah, and existence right. versus another place. I never thought about it from the visual concept of frozen in time. I think that that, that just really paints a, a picture that a lot of folks like me don't understand. I relate uh, to it because I know individuals in that situation, but yeah, that's a, that's an interesting analogy. I, I hadn't really, really thought about that. Um, I've noticed that, you know, more recently you've become a lot more active on Twitter, <laughs> speaking out for the need for immigration reform in the U S and using your story, you know, as an example to to do so. What's been motivating you to speak up? Well, uh, I guess you know I've never been quiet about anything in my life, so <laughs> it comes to me relatively easily. No, and but 
in all seriousness, I mean, a lot of people are in situations where they can't speak out because they're afraid to. Um, they're afraid to because it could, you know, it could be misconstrued by their employer. They're afraid because, you know, they don't know what's being recorded, but, but you know, what might leave a paper trail that will lead to somebody, you know, looking askance at an application. And also there's just sort of the unknown unknown. I mean, what, you know, what if something changes and something I said three years ago winds up being used against me? And then mm -hmm. there is a certain sort of level of fear that people have. Um, you know, once, once I, uh, you know, when, once I gotten the bad news, it was, I frankly felt like I had nothing to lose. Um, and all I had was, uh, you know, all I could do was gain from telling my story. Um, and, and the reason I sort of did it was, twofold. Uh, the first is that I hope that I can speak on behalf of some people who are in the same situation mm -hmm. with the complete recognition that there are a lot of people in much worse situations. Uh, mm -hmm. People who don't really have great alternatives or, you know, people who, you know, I waited 14 years, they're waiting 20, 30, 40, 50 years. They've got children who are going to age out at 21. Um, but the other reason was because most Americans are not aware of this. When you bring up immigration, the first thought is of illegal immigration. Mm -hmm. when you bring up immigration difficulties, the first thought is of you know, refugees and, and people in much harsher circumstances. Most Americans don't know about, situ about the situation of highly skilled immigrants because it is just so unthinkable. Everyone just right. assumes that if you go to the best schools and have a great job and work really hard and pay your taxes and don't break any laws, they just assume that there's a way in. Um, but that's actually not what shakes out. And if you sort of look at the numbers, and I, I often cite Twitter and elsewhere, it's sort of two mm. sets of numbers, one coming from the Trump White House, one coming mm. from the New York Times in 2014. So, you know, pick, you can pick your side. The numbers right. are the same. The worst way to come to America is through merit and skill. Yeah. So, um, and that's both because you see that bear out in the absolute numbers of people who come, and you also see it in the relative proportions, which mm -hmm. actually tells you, uh, it's funny sort of looking at it mathematically, it tells you it's not just about how many people apply which way, it's also that coming in through family is you know, mm -hmm. 10 times easier than coming in through, um, yeah. through your job and your, your employer and your skills and your education. And you talked about on your article, I think you, something like 70% of you know all green cards are, are family based you know and that's 12 percent are based on your employer so you know a, a, an avenue like mine whether off a l1a work visa or an h1b work visa but you know, work visas are one way and that's 12 percent right. that includes the spouses of right. people coming in that way so people right. like my husband so so it's actually only you know maybe half of that that are mm -hmm. that are people that have come in that way then 70% and that's composed, uh, so 70% come in based on their family and that's mm -hmm. either spouses of US citizens or people uh, who are being sponsored by other family members, so brothers. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying those people sh shouldn't be allowed to come in. Of course they are. Of course, you know, an American should be able to bring in their spouse, but the proportions are what's really, really shocking. Right. Uh, and by the way, just, you know, in case anybody's wondering, the remainder, um, you know, between the 70 and the 12 is made up of um, refugee and sort of humanitarian assistance, um, as well as the, the green card uh, diversity lottery. Yeah, uh, DV. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and what's interesting, and it's something I've been talking about a good bit, is how the percentages are just out of whack, right? Mm -hmm. When we look at what are we promoting here? 
And, you know, that's something that we've talked, I've talked about a good bit. And I've also, of course, you know, talked about the, the country cap quotas as it relates to employment-based preferences. But, you know, I think the issue is when we start to look at DV, refugee, and these family based, and we look at what their contributions are to our economy and society, and you weigh those against the individuals that are employment-based preferences of merit and skill, are, are those equal when we start to talk about human capital war, which is something that I've been talking about a good bit here lately, are, are they are they equal? Do we do, do we win? And is it always about winning? No, but I think it's about the, the the impact and the value, especially in times where we're we're sort of swirling, if you will. Well, I, I think the first thing that I'd want to say is that you know this isn't a zero sum game, right? Like right. just because one person comes in on their job doesn't mean another person, a, someone's spouse can't come in. And we shouldn't, we shouldn't see it that way. Uh, mm -hmm. One, because it's in, in, factually incorrect, because you could simply yeah. have you know, more people come in overall. And then secondly, because I, I think it creates, you know, problematic dynamics, and you can sort of see the immigrant community and, and, and you know, everybody's, it's like this, you know, you get resentful of, of people who have an easier way through. And that's, you know, that creates a lot of problems. But I think also to your point around competitiveness, you know, a lot, it's fair to ask what is the goal of immigration for a country? And mm. there are many different ones. Some people say it should be a matter of social justice and, um, you know, we should let in people based on dire need. Others say it's a matter of demographics and, um, and uh, diversity, and therefore it should be based on I mean, genetics, which is what family is based on. Mm -hmm. um, it, and then, you know, then you also hear the argument that, you know, we are in a uh, very competitive universe and, and that amazing advantage that America has had for a hundred years isn't quite as large as it was before. Um, and, you know, there's a cost associated to that. And I don't mean, you know, that you're losing out on, on university tuition. I mean that, you know, you're losing out on great researchers and you're mm -hmm. out on, you know, people who are starting, could start great businesses. And I guess, you know, the other cost here is just, you know, if you're, if you're forcing people who are really well-educated, you know, who had the chutzpah to, to come to the States to begin with, who really want to contribute, and you're trapping them in the system, that's also a huge waste of human capital because, mm -hmm. you know, they're just doing what they're allowed to do. They're not getting frozen in time. I think that's, that, that's yeah. the analogy, right? Exactly. Exactly. Like how many of these yeah. people could be starting their own businesses and, you know, H1Bs, for instance, have a lot of restrictions on whether you can start another business. Yes, you can set up a Delaware LLC, but you can't, you can't actually gain any money from your business. Uh, mm -hmm. you know, in a material way, because um, that yep. conflicts with the job that's sponsoring you. So, you know that that's another major loss on the on the competitive front. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I agree, hundred percent. And so, you know, I know there's been there's been a lot of uh, a change recently, and I, I guess I kind of wanted to you know throw it to you. You look at this this whole topic from the perception, from the perspective of competitiveness. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. I mean, I think um, it, it's interesting because what my career has been based on was, you know, staff augmentation in large enterprises. And 
kind of through this pandemic, I mean, what happens in consultant-based staffing is it ebbs and flows, right? You see big cuts and the big bulk ads. Um, but my concern and something that I've, I've talked about a lot is the nearshore aspect, right? Mm -hmm. and, and the quality that is north of the border and that's been developing south of the border as well uh, in places like Monterey, right? In places like Vancouver, of course, Toronto. Mm -hmm. What happens there is that more centralized time zones, right? And so central FIC times, um, but the quality at a, at a fraction of the cost. You see a lot of tech startups starting to, to feel that value. And so what does that mean? Does that mean that the American worker is too expensive? No, it just means that I can get the same quality for a fraction of the price if I decide to offshore or nearshore. And so that isn't just around development, but with the automation and the way technology has evolved now, it's very easy for a small team in Canada to manage multiple applications, whereas it was that team used to be 25. Now it can be done offshore by two or three because of, of automation. And so that is something that I've been talking about a lot because that to me is my biggest fear is that we, we talk about restricting the flow of high-skilled immigrants into the U.S., okay? Well, mm -hmm. we, when we do that, the impact of that is that people like you now are working in London, Toronto, Vancouver, Monterey, Costa Rica, right? You were talking about cheaper cost of living, more more friendly to the immigrant high-skilled worker. And we, if we continue to, to restrict, which I think that seems to be kind of uncertain at this point, um, I think that that competitiveness is going to continue to be narrowed by Canada and Australia um, and, and a lot of, you know, some of the other countries that, that we've talked about. And, and I think, you know, a lot of people, sort of adversaries of high skilled immigration will say, well, we should be investing in our own people. You know, why can't we have, uh, you know, native born Americans with with the same skills? And and the truth is, yes, why not? Absolutely invest mm -hmm. in. But, but as I was saying earlier, it's not a zero sum game. Um, mm -hmm. I, I know sometimes you know, there's so much anecdotal evidence and, and you know, the, especially within sort of the H-1B context, there's a lot of uh, controversy there. And, um, and, you know, you hear of people who had to train their replacements. And but then on a whole, the, the numerical evidence doesn't really support that. Um, so, you know, there, there are certainly, you know, problems and issues to be resolved here, but it, it, it's not a zero sum game just because you, you know, mm -hmm. bring an immigrant, that doesn't mean you're, you're, you're taking a job, you know, away from someone else. So overwhelmingly Americans are job creators. And one more thing is that it's, it's always strange to me that people um, channel and focus the argument around job stealing on yeah. people who are, 12% of the immigrant base. So nobody mm -hmm. seems to begrudge family-based immigrants mm -hmm. the role that they take. So it's curious that it's, you know, just that one group. Um, yeah. Why, why do you think that is? I think it partly it's a absence of uh, sort of knowing the stats. It's it's only you know twelve percent. Granted, there are more visas, right? But when it comes to to green cards, it's 
it's just 12%. So a lot of people just don't know that. And mm -hmm. it's not, yeah. you know, it's a labeling thing too. If you call it, you know, at this point, the H1B is really vilified and it's a bit of a, you know, a, 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 it causes a spark with a lot of people. Um, but you hear work visa or employment mm -hmm. based. So you assume mm -hmm. that that's where your ire ought to be focused. Um, but mm -hmm. yeah, there's just a, you know, there's such a dissonance there. It's like, what, you don't have that same problem with the other 80%. So, right, you know, right. 80%. Yeah, you know, I think a lot of it goes back to when the cap was expanded to the over 200,000 and then kind of walked back. And I think a lot of people in that late 90s, early 2000s and sort of the the dot-com boom, if you mm -hmm. will, I think that that a lot of this rhetoric is based on 20 years ago. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and I think it just, just it became, like the policies it, and the numbers are correct. And it, and it's become easy and it's something that's, it's easy to, to pile onto. And I think that, and it's, and it's not that some of it isn't warranted, right? There's been a lot of documented fraud. And, you know, when you look at kind of the way the integrators have flexed their muscles on, on the lottery and game the system. Um, so it isn't, it isn't unwarranted, right? But I think mm -hmm. it comes back to, there are jobs that I know for a hundred percent fact that there just are not enough Americans or there aren't any that have that particular skill. And I did a video that came out about a month ago, and it was around the HB H-1B uh, one workforce grant program. And it mm -hmm. talks about training up unemployed or underskilled Americans and kind of what the purpose behind it is. Um, and, you know, my point around that program is that why use H-1B as the moniker? Why not call it, you know, American high skilled, you know, one workforce program? It, it's to continue to use a work visa in a workforce grant program mm -hmm. to me just is the continuation of, of the current administration's like piling on of of that and using it as um sort of the anti uh rhetoric but you know i think the thing that 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 tells me is that we know kind of based on some of the discussions that are happening right now that things could could be changing um you know and and i guess question for you as, as an outsider and, and that's you know now that the election results are over you've had some time to digest it you know what are your predictions for employment-based immigration in the u.s for the next four years sure no that's that's a great question and i mean certainly there's there are a lot of people who are very sort of optimistic um i'm a bit less optimistic to mm. be frank mm -hmm. uh and the reason for that is that you know we didn't get to where we are today uh through just the um, the sort of ex executive orders that that have have made things so difficult for some people. Mm -hmm. We got to where we are today through decades of ignoring the problem and kicking the can down the road and making mm -hmm. tweaks that just made the system even more difficult to navigate and even more irrational. Uh, you know, I I came to America when 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 George W. Bush became president, and mm -hmm. uh, you know there was there were there were Republican and Democrat administration since then. And mm -hmm. aside from, you know, some, some very minor tweaks, for instance, to sort of the OPT, there, there hasn't been any material change. Right. Uh, and, and therefore I think, you know, you, you can rescind uh, some of the executive orders, but that just means we'll get back to where we were before, which is. You know, Nothing well, new. 
yeah. that's it, and, and long H1B waits, and, and nothing right. of what I've seen in in President-elect Joe Biden's uh, plan really addresses skilled immigration. Um, mm -hmm. And and that's really unfortunate. I, I did see a, a version of his um, of his platform that that did mention it. It was last mm -hmm. on the list, so yeah. I would not hold my breath. I think we'll yeah, go back. It's to not in the first hundred days, uh, for no, sure. No, definitely you know, not, definitely I, I, not in the first hundred days. Uh, again, not 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 for for people like me and the and the, anybody watching that's 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 a work based, employment based, or skills based immigrant. Um, I will say that if. Somebody decides tomorrow to overturn Trump era denials. I would run to be first in line. <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, but <laughs> but I'm definitely not not uh, you know not expecting that to happen. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's it's very interesting. I I, I honestly, you know, when you look at kind of the first hundred days and what's in store. I mean, it just is, it reads family-based immigration. It, it, it talks about, you know, illegal, addressing the illegal immigrate, uh, immigrants, the 11 million mm -hmm. undocumented. Um, and then, you know, further down the list, as you said, you know, it's the high-skilled temporary foreign worker, uh, employment-based uh, country quotas for green cards. And that's all, I want to work with Congress on, mm -hmm. right? And so, listen, I mean, and, and as alluded to yesterday, Georgia is um, in a double Senate runoff. We vote again on January 5th that for two seats that will decide control of the Senate. And so, you know, it's very interesting when you start to look at that. We, I joked last week that gosh, it just means more phone calls, ads, mailers, and everything that, that that's coming our way. And um, earlier today, the, the morning news was on and there were new U.S. Senate you know, campaign ads already on the television. They didn't waste any time. And so <laughs> I'm very interested to see how those play out because I think that that could have a greater impact on the first two years. I honestly don't have any expectations for anything as it relates to employment-based preferences, high-skilled temporary foreign workers until May or June, if you know the results hold as as being um, uh, you know said right now and uh, and posted. Yeah. So I, to be frank, I don't see either side doing doing much on this, um, unfortunately, and. Uh, <laughs> You know, I, I, for me, the, a really good example of a paradox is is something like the the children of uh, people waiting in line for green cards who who age out. Um, mm -hmm. So there are a lot of efforts to, and just I guess for people who don't know the context here, uh, if you're a parent and you're in a 10, 15, 20 year wait for a green card, and you have brought a child in uh, with you, so the your your child is not born in the U.S. That child, as long as they're a child, is on a visa that is dependent on on you. But the moment they reach 21, if they haven't gotten that green card, they age out of the system. They they no longer have a visa. Suddenly, they have 
they're not allowed to be in the United States. And, you know, we're talking about kids who were not born here or were not born in the U.S., but effectively have grown up in the U.S. And as we all know, the kids of, uh, of immigrants tend to, you know, do better at school and, and you know, have disproportionately uh, greater acceptance rates at, um, at some of the best universities. Mm-hmm. And those kids suddenly are foreign and they have to go back to, you know, India, Bulgaria, Chad, wherever they their parents came from, um, or secure an H-1B or an mm-hmm. L-1A or, or, you know, whatnot. And they, they're they just, you know, sent to the back of the line. Um, and so, you know, the idea is, well, hang on, children of immigrants who came illegally get protection, uh, get, get temporary mm-hmm. protected status under DACA. Um, why not include the children of legal immigrants into that? And I sort of, you know, if you've gotten to the point of saying, of saying that, you, you know, the system's pretty messed up uh, because mm-hmm. they couldn't, like, yes, it would absolutely be great for, for these kids to be included under DACA, but they shouldn't need to resort to that at all because, you know, why are there parents, why are the parents in 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 year lines? Um, mm-hmm. That's the part that has to be fixed. And I just, I don't see much will, uh, you know, on either side of the aisle to, to tackle some of these things because the system has just gotten so complex and so, um, you know, it, it, it's gone beyond sort of tweaks and fixes. It needs, it needs, you know, more systematic reform. Although I don't, I, I mean, I don't see what's labeled as comprehensive immigration reform happening anytime yeah. soon. And even there, you're going to wind up with, you know, so many entrenched interests and, you know, you, 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 it's like a Jenga puzzle, you know, you, you pull out one piece, the whole thing's going to come toppling down. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it, you're right. I think it, it, it comes down to what, where do they go first? Cause there is a lot that, that is on their plate as it relates mm-hmm. to immigration. And I think that, 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 you know, what you talked about the DACA, um, but I, th- I think the term they're using is DALCA for, for those dreamers and, you know, the legal child, um, if you will. And be yeah, very interesting to see how they address, you know, those because a lot of stories out there about 21 and aging out and yeah. having nowhere to go well, and trying enough. to get in. Not enough. I mean, people F1. have no idea. People don't know. Yeah. People all the time and they're like, what? Yeah. They're, you know, rightfully concerned about about kids who were brought here through no fault of their own illegally rightfully right. americans are concerned about that but then when you right. tell them about the story of the children of legal immigrants it is so counterintuitive that they i mean half the time they don't believe you so right. i don't think there are enough stories being told and and one thing that i always try to you know try to say on twitter is you know if you can write your story down put it right. on you know if you can't find a place to publish it publish self publish on medium Mm-hmm. Um, if you are afraid of repercussions, write under pseudonym. But right. you know, if if anything, there has been a little bit of a little bit more awareness, uh, you know, recently, um, and so there's a bit of an opening to to gain awareness. And, mm-hmm. and I, you know, you're you've played a very big part in that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think it, it's funny you say that. I I was around one of my neighbors uh, last week, and um, She's very well educated, uh, masters. I think she even has a six-year master's degree, and um, she saw something on the news and was like, "Oh, it was talking about H-1Bs." And she's like, "Oh, I know what that is." And she only knows that because of the channel and and me. And so, 
you know, I think that that was like, okay, that that's one of those like reassuring moments. Like, all right, I got through to somebody who's very well educated. I made her knowledgeable on a subject that she wasn't. And so, you know, to, just to, to keep, keep going and, you know, but also, I will not shut up about it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and, and also, you know, how, how it, it isn't about just keep talking about it, but it's also how do we draft reform? Right. And that kind of leads me to my mm -hmm. next question for you. And it's, it's something that, you know, I think you and I have talked about, excuse me, a little bit. And, and that's, you know, if you could draft some sort of legislation that would be beneficial for the U.S. economy, for American workers, and and honestly, for folks like you, the world's best and brightest, you know what what would that be? Do you have any you know thoughts or or ideas on what oh gosh, kind of? I don't know about world's best and brightest, but that's kind of weird to say. <laughs> um, no, I think I don't know a lot of Harvard graduates, so I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> I know a lot of Georgia Tech graduates that are some of the best and brightest here oh, in Atlanta, but <laughs> um, no, I'd say look. Uh, America is an exceptional country, 100%. I am I am a, a firm believer in American exceptionalism um, to the sort of dismay of many of my foreign friends. Um, but immigration is not a unique problem. It is not a unique issue. And there are a lot of countries out there that have found ways to make sure that <laughs> that the weight for people who are who are highly qualified is not you know many 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 decades or uh nor you know or or requiring litigate endless litigation three to or, six months in some cases for some of the, yeah. the, the systems out there yeah, yeah. And, and, and you know in in many other countries um you know it isn't you know, lawyers don't, first of all, you don't even need a lawyer. Uh, right. But secondly, you don't see lawyers joking about how eh, the best thing for you to do is just to marry a citizen. I mean, it's right. not its not the easier route. And it is sort of, I have to say, it's incredibly demeaning to be told, oh, well, you should have just married a U.S. citizen. Um, right. Really? That's, that's how you want the system to work? You want to incentivize, you know, the, okay, legitimate or sham marriages? You don't want people to come in based on their merit? Um, so, and I'd say that the countries that are managing immigration better are those that that have, to some extent, uh, uh, a married, uh, a merit-based uh, immigration system, and that's a point-based system. And and of course, they're imperfect, um, you know, plenty of problems. But that way, at least you I do two things. One is you actually take into consideration a person's education and a person's work experience, a person's sort of contribution to the country. Um, and then, you know, number two, you make it you make it a sort of transparent, visible um, system. And incidentally, I mean, you know, I, I've heard when I brought this up, I've, I've heard sort of counter arguments, but like, oh, yeah, but we have the O visa. That's that's right. Based. But that's largely reserved specifically for celebrities celebrities in a field celebrities music art yeah music, music, art but but also you know people who have already become uh famous you know as economists or whatever abroad and who are brought mm -hmm. on that so it isn't about you know potential for instance mm -hmm. and um and the other difference that's important here is that uh in the u.s if you are uh, applying for a green card through your job it is not you, the immigrant, who is applying. It is your, mm. you're a third party to the process. Your mm. employer is the applicant. That's They're right. applying on behalf of a role which you happen to fill. 
Yeah. And that means the a term is petitioner, right? Yeah. I mean, they okay. are <laughs> petitioning on your behalf. Precisely. And so you are just, you know, you don't, I mean, most of the time, and, and this isn't law, but most of the time, you don't get to see your application. Um, so you don't know what's being put in. You yep. you don't have the right to appeal. It has to be the employer. So you are entirely beholden to your employer. And that obviously creates a lot of, you know, strange dynamics because, you know, while you're trying to hold down a job and keep everybody happy, you know, you mm -hmm. can't exactly push back. And that's actually a place where I feel um, that I hope you know, in the absence of significant regulatory reform, mm -hmm. I would hope that employers uh, could sort of step up and help empower their employees. I know this isn't possible with every employer, but you know, especially some of the some of the you know big employers that have a lot of visibility. You know, if they if they ensure that their employees who are in these situations get to see their application, get to drive the strategy, which mm -hmm. they technically can, but in effect, do not, mm -hmm. um, we might be in a better situation because then, you know, rather than having to go with your employer's lawyer, you could find your lawyer that perhaps mm -hmm. is, you know, has your individual interests at heart as much as it has the employer's <laughs> interest right. at, along with the, you know, beautiful procurement contract they've signed for however many years, you know, so. Right. Well, and you're paying them on your own retainer so that, you know, they are sort of a, a third party, if you will, in, in, in that situation. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, I think it, it, you, you said something very interesting and, and you and I had talked about this before, and I go back to all the perm labor cases that I process, um, you know, when it came time to, to the I-140 phase, there was a very small packet sent to the beneficiary for their signature. Mm -hmm. Everything else was kept removed from, from that. And so, you know, I, I think that's one of the things that a lot of folks don't understand when they're getting into that is that the employer doesn't have to share that information with you. There yeah. is some that they do, and you have to know when and how to request that. And so yeah. that's a great, great point, Christine. You have Just to, you have to have a, a, you know, mini JD. I mean, then you know, yeah. I mean, often say, well, you know, why don't you just you know, it's an application. Why don't you fill that? It's not an application. You don't get to fill it out. It is a court case. Mm -hmm. It is a legal case that is right. you know, mounted by a legal team that is basically executing a multi-year strategy to hopefully mm -hmm. fill the preferences of the USCIS official that looks at your file. And right. it might the bureaucrat. I mean, at the end of the day, it's what it is. Yeah. So exactly. I know we've talked about merit a good bit. Um, you know, I'm a big proponent of, of a merit-based system. I've talked about it a lot, uh, championed it. I think it would be, you know, a system that, that could be an answer to a lot of problems that, that we have as it surrounds employment-based preferences. Do you think it could work in the U.S.? I don't see why not. It works elsewhere. Um, and, and you know, what do we mean by work? Um, you know, what's the objective here? Is it mm -hmm. is it bringing in people who have, you know, talents and skills and education uh, to to sort of bring economic value to the country? Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. okay. Can we add in uh, components that make sure that you know you're not just coming to America for the money, but that you actually want to contribute to the country that you, you know, that, that, that you want to be part of the nation, not just mm -hmm. work in the country. Yeah, you mm -hmm. can. I mean, when you're applying for citizenship, there's a citizenship test. There's no reason that there shouldn't be a component like that for a green card. 
Um, mm. you know, and then you can see, you know, do people volunteer in their community? Do they, you know, do they do more than just their job? You know, there, there are plenty of components like that, um, mm. that, that could be, could be part of it. Um, just depends what Americans want. I've called it the, uh, H1B EAD in the past too. And, you know, put kind of 10 categories and points around it, because if you look at the other merit-based systems out there, they're all pretty similar. Yep. You know, there's there's value on command of of the native language, English, and in, in this in this case, the education, um, the offer letter, and sort of compensation mm -hmm. associated with that, the skill set and experience. And by the way, none of that is really considered if you marry a U.S. citizen. Right. So the amount exactly. of scrutiny that that twelve percent right. is is pretty right, crazy. right. And then you know some of the other things that it, they're speaking of marrying. You're talking about there's actually weighted value applied to the spouse's skill when we get into merit. And that adds to the overall individual who's who's applying. Um, you know, then there's value on age and, and things like that. And I think that to me, that just kind of, that, that becomes the answer to eliminating a lot of the, the H-1B fraud that's that's consistently thrown out rhetorically as, as being rampant, but it also will help in this sort of, you know the backlog that a lot of individuals have knowingly stood in line mm -hmm. but no knowingly because that's what the system and the cycle is the unknowingly part about that is that you're going to be stuck in that until most likely you pass or away and perish. Yeah. yeah and so i think that that to me is you know where the, the breaking point comes back to when i when i really started to do my research on you know, the green card backlog and knowing what I know about the H-1B system, to me, it comes back to merit and, and awarding individuals based on merit and skill, I think mm -hmm. will foster innovation. It'll foster tech, technology advancements here in this country, like like unforeseen and unimaginable. Absolutely. But I think I think now, you know, and the, the, the scary part about that is, you know, in 2016, you know, President Trump talked about a merit-based system. We saw that yeah. in the Cotton Bill in 2017. There were these waving murmurs that were coming in July that there was an executive order looming around merit. Mm -hmm. And then nothing, right? And then, you know, based on the results we're seeing now. And the exact opposite. <laughs> a Biden plan is not a merit-based plan. And so, you know, hopefully they are willing to listen. Um, we'll see. I think we'll see there there's i'm not going to stop talking about merit you and i you know i think that's one of the things we really agree on pretty extensively is that a merit-based system could work what's the why behind it what are we looking to accomplish if that's clearly defined and the categories and the points are clearly defined based on the electronic advancements that we've had it could be easily implemented and the problem is, is that you've got a lot of attorneys who are going to lose out on immigration fees who would fight that merit-based system tooth and nail. And that's just unfortunate because I'm friends with a lot of really good immigration attorneys, but, you know, they don't spend well, a lot of time in court. Some bailout. <laughs> <laughs> right. There you go. <laughs> exactly. So you've spoken out on my behalf on Twitter and, you know, thank you so much for that. I just really appreciate that so much. I, I can't even begin to tell you how much that means, but what led you to me and, and the H1B guy platform? Oh gosh. That's it. Yeah. That's a, that's a good question. I guess, you know, I started, um, 
I started getting more active on Twitter this past summer when there were a lot of, you know, the, the, there were the, the COVID related travel bans, but, but mm -hmm. not so much that as much as the, the, um, the bans on students. Um, mm -hmm. and so I felt like that was a, an important opportunity to tell people, hang on, this is just the tip of the iceberg. Like if right. suddenly people were paying attention to that problem and I thought, okay, here's an opening to tell people more about how high skilled immigration works for all these people. Like this is, you know, this is again, the, the tip of the iceberg. Um, and so I, to, you know, to, to, to bring that story to light, I shared that on Twitter. And then as I got into these dis discussions and debates, um, I saw that there was this, this reference in the community. Mm -hmm. like, and somebody mm -hmm. wanted something clarified mm -hmm. uh, it was to, you know, at the H1B guy. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I was really curious because mm -hmm. it's a great name, H1B guy. Mm -hmm. um, and incidentally, I've actually never been on an H1B, so we've had this whole conversation I mentioned. Yeah, isn't that funny? But uh, it's sort of, you know, it, it, that's what everybody knows uh, when we talk about employment-based visas. Um, and and so I discovered that, that the H-1B guy was not a lawyer. So that was mm. the first really startling thing is that, you know, there's this there's this really big need for somebody to explain this in mm. real world terms. Um, and, right. and you are that guy. And, mm -hmm. you know, on top of that, you actually know all the legal stuff. So mm -hmm. it's very intimidating because, you know, you, you know, all the, you know, all the minutiae of it um, without actually being a lawyer. But I think that's increasingly what people need, because as mm -hmm. as the law becomes essentially impossible to navigate, um, I, I mean, even lawyers themselves bemoan all the changes because it's such chaos. Uh, mm -hmm much they can do you know employers um and immigrants need to have someone they can speak to who mm -hmm. can explain how this stuff works in in layman's terms and in business terms and and you're that person um so yeah. you know if there's somebody out there looking for a uh, understandable real world interpretation of what's going on um i would very much encourage them to reach mm -hmm. out to h1b guy well, thank you so much. And, you know, it's it's funny because you start to think about and I, and I looked and I saw that there is just this gap. Right. And the gap is that there's a lot of folks out there talking about the legal side of it. And then there's a lot of individuals out there giving their personal story. And I think that that was the one thing that I realized made me unique um, and that I do bridge that gap. Right. And I think you know, when you and I talked a few weeks ago uh, to, to get prepared for today, you said something that just just literally just made me beam. And that was, you know, in kind of what you said here, everyone knows what an H-1B is, at least as we talk about employment based preferences and that, you know, you love the concept of the H-1B guy, but I'm so much more than that. And that's right. And I think that that's one of the things that when I launched this platform in kind of mid late June, some of the feedback I was getting was you're more than just the H-1B guy. <laughs> Have you thought about changing your handle? And I felt at that point, I was just kind of I was committed to it. I was very convicted in, in what this concept and platform was supposed to be. And so just, you know, thank you. I, I, I've had some folks challenge me about, hey, what am I actually doing? Mm -hmm. And I, I think that this platform right now and my voice and having folks like you tell their story is just a small piece of that. I want to do more. I want to engage more. And I want to do that for the benefit of everyone still trying to wrap my brain around how we're going to do that um, and how we're going to be more of an advocate. But, you know, 
again, thank you for the promotion and the support. I just, I really appreciate that. No, absolutely. And I think, you know, honestly, there are a lot of people who don't know, who do want to know, but it's, it can be such an inaccessible topic because it is so confusing and so complicated. Um, people don't know who to go to. And that's both, again, individuals, but also employers. I mean, I've seen I've actually been, you know, on the other side where, where, you know, I've had employees on, on visas and I've seen employers have to, you know, constantly redraft job descriptions. They're mm-hmm. unable to move people. Um, you know, there's a, there's a moment where they start letting people go and suddenly they can't find half the people because the news is spread and all those people are terrified that they'll deport it. Yeah, they're not uh, showing up. They're really suddenly hard. sick with the flu for a suddenly week. Suddenly sick with the flu, yeah. And, and, uh, you know, this is something that, you know, if you're, you're an employer. You, you don't. Ex- if you're a you're a manager, uh, you don't expect that you know some big chunk of your sort of mental space and acumen is going to have to be uh, dedicated to understanding the minutia of of one of the most complicated and convoluted areas of American law. Yeah. So we've got. I think. I don't know if we uh, there. I don't know if you've got any questions from folks. Um, yeah, there are there are a couple. Um, did you think there was one one you were gonna throw at me, and then I had one more for you, and then there's one from Twitter, and we have one on on uh, YouTube. Absolutely. Yes, yeah, so I think one of the you know something that I I'm curious about um, with something like your work on the platform as the H one guy is. I'm curious, you know, how do you, how do you engage with people on this mm-hmm. topic? Because for me, something I found, and I don't know, you know, people who are watching on the show, it's really difficult to talk to people about mm-hmm. immigration because you get mm-hmm. people who are just against all and any immigration who are sympathetic, but overall think it's such a problem. You know, who cares about the collateral damage? We just got to get this under control. And then on the other side, mm-hmm. you've got people who, you know, are really really focused on human rights issues and social justice issues who just don't have time for anybody who isn't, you know, really in a, in a, in a horrible circumstance. Mm-hmm. Um, so when you try to bring this up, it, it, it's extremely thorny. Um, people get extremely, mm-hmm. I mean, my way of trying to engage, especially with Americans is to ask them, how do you think it should work? Mm-hmm. Um, and then you typically get some really interesting examples and, and really interesting responses. So for instance, yeah. They'll say, I, I've had one gentleman say, well, they should, uh, you know, immigrants should um, serve in the military. That's, you know, a lot of people can disagree with that, but that's an unreasonable request. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and then when you say, oh, well, you know, I want people to come in on merit. I want this. And you say, okay, but, you know, do you think it's, it's right that only 12% of green cards go to people based on their jobs and employment and that it takes them, you know, 10 times as long and sometimes, you know, 80 years. Mm-hmm. That's one way where they say, well, no, well, that's crazy. That shouldn't be that way. Then, then you start kind of engaging in a constructive manner, but just, you know, I'm, I'm curious how you do it because it is. Yeah. So, you know, I think one of the things that's interesting about, you know, not only my teenage years, but kind of growing up, right. Which is, I've been in chat rooms on the internet since the mid nineties and, you know, I grew up with social media. I I didn't have Facebook for a long time, but I had MySpace, and I've had a Twitter account for a long time. Um, So 
when I engage with folks, a lot of times it's, you know, I've, I've found something that I find interesting or a point that they made that either I don't agree with or that there are some challenges to. And so what I try to do is, is use kind of a fact-based point of view from my interpretation, meaning understand what the fact is, come up with my own interpretation and use that to deliver, you know, my point. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of times what I, I get in terms of pushback is, um, you know, I'll have folks that, that push back and say, well, uh, you know, I've already said that, or I've made that point, but when you start to use real hard data and numbers, uh, I think that that's where a lot of you uncover a lot of the fake out there because there isn't a, a return and it's not about being in an argument. It's about let's, let's understand the fact and, and let's, let's state the fact and then interpret what that fact means as we apply it to employers, as we apply it to employees. And so I think that that's one of the things that I've done is, and, and really try to bridge both sides is, um, a couple of my really big supporters are very anti-H1B. Mm -hmm. And so that tells me that I'm doing something right. I'm earning that trust on folks that, you know, are very much anti-H1B. But I also know that, you know, my customer base, primarily 85, 90% are folks that are either on an H1 or came here on an H1 or in some different status. And so what I try to do is understand, okay, this is why they're saying that. Now let's interpret that based on fact and come to a conclusion. And I think I've earned a lot of trust in being genuine and taking that approach. Excellent. Yeah. I think that's, that's the way to go about it. Um, Cause I don't think, you know, there's no, there's no point in sort of screaming and yelling about it. Um, I also think, you know, something that doesn't work is sort of playing the, you know, playing the, oh, sorry, was it frozen there? Yep. But you yep. know, the victim card, for example, because, you know, at the end of the day, of course, people who are, you know, in, in, in these, you know, still pretty great jobs are, are in a position, uh, you know, are in many ways in a positive position. Mm -hmm. uh, but that doesn't mean that there's, you know, suffering isn't real and, and, and right. that the, and sort of the emotional sort of tax there isn't um, worth considering. And I, I'm always sort of dismayed when people uh, approach immigrant groups and say, well, yeah, but you're still better off than those guys. And, and mm -hmm. you know, you know, it could be so much worse. Um, yeah. You know, you say that to somebody who's sick that, you know, you don't have the right to to you know, complain about having you know this disease because someone else has cancer, um, and and I think you know at the end of the day, this is such a complex problem that to try to bring it down to you know one group against another, that that won't get you anywhere. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, and what's you know interesting uh, uh, about that specifically is that I've fed the trolls before, but what I realize is that I'm not going to win that battle. And so while I may engage, I don't have enough time to win that battle. I just don't. <laughs> what I've realized with some of some of the really far anti that that are looking to to troll is that I'm not going to win against them because they're willing to, to, to work relentlessly to get that instant gratification and response back. Yeah. And so and I think I've mentioned this and, and you know, I've talked about this before is that 
If you've got people that are finding you and attacking you and talking negatively about you, you're doing something right. Absolutely. So, Absolutely. <laughs> so um, I wanted to just kind of wrap up our Q&A and then get to, we've got a couple questions that have come in on YouTube and, and one from, from Twitter. Uh, but I wanted to ask you, you know, we've talked a lot about how you've gotten to where you are. Um, but what's next for Christine's career? <laughs> Oh gosh. Um, good things. I hope. <laughs> uh, and, and I did actually apply for the green card lottery, you know, where there's will, there's way I couldn't do it based on my education and, um, and, and my career. So maybe I can just do it on blind luck. <laughs> you know, <laughs> random selection based on a lottery. Yeah. yeah. I mean, so maybe a few months from now, you know, I'll be happily telling you how I, how I just got a green card through dumb luck, not, not yeah. hard work. Um, you know, look, there are, I'm certain that there are people, you know, in, in line for their green cards who are thinking, you know, is it worth it? Um, and would I be better off elsewhere? It is very hard to, to leave the place that you call home. Um, and so, you know, it, it, emotionally, it was very difficult for me to, to sort of, as I say, is or cut my losses. Um, mm -hmm. I'd envisioned a, a future in America. I wanted to, work in um, things like foreign policy and, and work on kind of explaining America to the rest of the world um, and, you know, public diplomacy, for instance. And, uh, you know, unfortunately that <laughs> I'm not going to be a groupie for a band that won't let me into their gig. Right. Um, so, you know, I have to uh, find a new vocation and a new passion. And, um, you know, there's, there are so many exciting things, you know, going on in the world, whether it's kind of in, uh, you know, even, even in the finance space. I mean, it's, it's mm -hmm. a great, Front row seat to a lot of the the exciting developments in the world, so that that's yeah. always you know my 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 baseline. Um, but you know, I certainly am going to keep up my advocacy uh, for merit based based immigration. It's it's yep. you know not for myself, for them, for the people who come next. Well, and I will tell you, I think you're a very skilled writer. Um, you know, your story on Medium just is <laughs> flows so well, and and just you know very very descriptive and just paints a picture that. Really makes me angry, unfortunately. But that's a that's a whole nother conversation, I guess, right? Well, that's um, to say. Thank you. I I, uh, I I know you know we've got several folks that are still joining us here on the live stream. Um, if you have any questions, we're going to do a quick Q and A here, um, and then we'll wrap this up. Uh, wrap the stream up here in a little bit but if you have any questions um we've got a few already on youtube go ahead and post those in there i'm going to pull up a twitter question that came in um from from one of our both of our big supporters um so at ev guy seven had posted uh something on on twitter here and uh said uh, hoping something like tenure-based immigration process would allow us to retain but also recover immigrants like Christine. And what um, EV Guy 7 is referring to um, is a tweet from uh, Alex uh, Narasta uh, discussing the permanent immigration registry and the concept of creating a permanent rolling legalization. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Pretty complicated if you think about what this is implying here. Yeah. Um, but I think what it what this does also it, it tells me, Christine, is that there is still hope for folks like you who have had denials that are qualified based on on merit. What do you what are your thoughts on this? 
Yeah, it's, it's a really interesting point because a lot of countries do have a, you know, if, if you have been here illegally uh, with a job paying taxes for, you know, 10, 20 years, then here you go, you can stay. Um, yeah. and, and, and Canada has a version of that. Um, the UK has a version of that where you've sort of settled status becomes, another, um, you know, pre-settled status, settled status contributes to, to citizenship. Um, but I think, you know, the, the one thing to consider is that However, you reform the system, um, and I think you know everybody agrees that the H-1Bs is, is sort of sort need of reform. Um, you can't ignore the fact that there are a million people in line in a backlog, and there are so many people who are already in the system. So if you're going to change it, you can't have that impact everybody who's followed the rules and stood in line, however crazy that line and crazy the rules. Right. And so, you know, this could be one way to address a phase it. period. Yeah, I think I yeah. I had called it, you know, I mentioned the H1B EAD earlier, but I had mentioned using the H1B EAD as sort of a way to do that. Having folks that have been in the country for at least six years that haven't approved I-140 to go ahead and be issued this, you know, H1B EAD with advanced parole rights, because that's what it comes down to. It's freedom to choose, freedom of travel. Um, freedom to to determine their wages, right? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, that's that. I, th I think that this would fall in line with that. And so, um, I think it's a great question. We'll definitely something to keep our eyes on. That's that's yeah, for sure. Absolutely. It's it's you see it elsewhere. It exists in other countries. Um, yep. So, it's definitely doable. Well, and I think it also goes to the fact that like just because you're not currently out in the country doesn't mean that you still don't have this desire to be a permanent resident. Right. And so there's, you know, I think that that's a, another, another good point. Um, so these questions have come in here on YouTube. So I'll throw those out. Uh, I'm going to take this one here, Christine. It says, uh, this is from Kapil Sharma. Uh, it's very easy to get GC after H1B unless you're born in India. India is a big no, no. Well, you know, I would say, Christine's story is an example of it's not as easy as you may assume it to be. And Christine was on an L1A, which is, you know, a managerial designation. Um, and to me, ultimately, is very similar to like an EB1 based preference. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, and so um, unfortunately, this is this is some of the assumptions that are made. That, it, that just because I'm an H-1B from India, I'm never going to get a green card. That's what's happening right now. Yeah, um, and that is true. I mean, it, it, so I would say that the part of the comment that absolutely makes sense, India is a big no-no. Absolutely, if you are, if you are, you know, born in India and on an H-1B, that the weight is unconscionable. I mean, it's it's beyond absurd. It's sometimes it's longer than somebody's lifespan, and I think the backlog is calculated with two hundred thousand deaths. That's according to the to to Cato uh, Cato's work yep. with the um, yep. DC think tank. Um, but I I would say that sort of two things. I mean, one is that no, it isn't very easy to get a green card after an H-1B. It may be much easier compared to if you are from India, but it is by no means you just have to do a labor cert. Um, yep. You know, you have to, first of all, you have the lottery for an H-1B. My company tried twice. I never got it. Right. Um, but then once you have the H-1B, you have the labor cert. That is a very thorny thing. A lot of a lot of those applicant, applications get audited. Um, and then there is still a long wait. And I'd also say that, you know, once you go down the path of kind of balkanizing the immigrant community and saying, you know, well, it's just about this or those guys have it easier and, and you know, it's worse there. Um, that that winds up not you know, not being very productive and, and, mm -hmm. and 
you know, no, it isn't very easy. No, it's not. I mean, I think the 600 plus and then, you know, the dependents tag to that prove that 1.2 million number, you know, that we've, right. we've talked about. It, it, it verifies that. Um, right. So this came in from uh, Vishnu Varden. Uh, Vishnu is a always joins us here on the live stream. So Vishnu, thank you. Hey guys, I'm getting 80K right now. Is it possible for me to apply H1B next time? I'm a master student. Um, and then he had a follow-up to that that says, did the wage increment policy for applying H1B was applied for, was applied or active? A new lawsuits were filed against it. Um, do you guys I'm have any news about it? So he's, he's talking about the, uh, the interim final rule and then the h1b lottery uh changes which which have been mentioned as well you know as as part of it that going to the electronic i believe system that which they've done but using the wage determination as the means for selection versus is random lottery selection mm -hmm. um so i think the question you know this is once you have your master's degree um, you're making 80K, most likely working on an EAD OPT or EAD OPT STEM. Um, depending upon your job requirements, I'm going to guess you're probably at a level two. Um, I don't know the MSA. So MSA meaning the city location, the, the metropolitan geographic area to which you're physically working in. Um, but I would say right now that 80K number probably would need to be increased by about 30% based on the wage level increases that that I've seen. Um, I know that the lawsuit on the IFR was filed um, back on Monday. I think it was October 10th, maybe maybe the 17th. I'm sorry if I, I have that wrong. Um, but I don't expect anything on that for a few more weeks. Those those cases generally take about six weeks to hit the, the district federal court. Uh, and this is why the H1B guy is amazing because he knows all the details. <laughs> um, so thank you for handling the details. I'll yes. just talk about something really, you know, heartbreaking in that sentence. So, so I'm a master student. Can I apply for an H1B? No, right. no individual can apply no. for an H1B. Only clarification: an employer the employer, right? So you, as an individual, no way. No, in my experience, you can. Uh, very friendly suggest or ask your employer <laughs> yes. to do so. And if they've never done so, uh, Vishnu, please have yeah. them contact me. I can definitely help them and what that process would need to look like. But thanks for joining the stream today. Really appreciate it. Um, so this comes in from Harish uh, Bayaravapu, and he asks, um, there's a lot of backlash from Americans that H-1B is cheap labor. Americans creating their foreign replacements is really directed towards Indians because we're not Caucasians. Um, E.g., if Disney hired a Caucasian on H-1B to replace a person who had been working in the company for 20 years or so, would they still stand on the national platform and say, I was replaced by a Caucasian H-1? I mean, um, this is where, like where we get... You know, that friend is... Some people are like, geez, if somebody who looks like me can't make it, what hope is there for them? Um, right. You know, I... I don't like that kind of, you know, racialized perspective. Um, yes, me either. I I, I'm not a fan. This is the truth. 
yeah, I, I mean, what I say is like my husband is Scottish and, 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 you know, live not too far from Trump's golf course. And I'm Canadian and Eastern European, like two of President Trump's three wives. Um, right. So, <laughs> and so here you are. Right. If it was if it was if it was a blatant kind of, uh, you know, discriminatory situation, um, you, you'd think I'd wind up in a, in a different place. But I didn't. So, um, yeah. yes, there I are, think that's something that that you know, not to allude to your interview on Tucker Carlson, but I'm going to, and that was the point that was driven home, you know, by, by him is that, wow, you know, um, America's loss is London's gain. And he, he talked about, if you can't make it, what does that mean for, for others or something along the lines of that context? And I think that that's a great point. And, you know, one that's, that's interesting is that um, I actually had a couple of H-1Bs from South Africa that used to work for me. And what was interesting, though, and uh, you talked about the movement from employer to employer and there being like a 12-month policy to apply for perm labor. And I can tell you that there's a lot of my former employees out there that will tell you we had some very heated discussions around I can't do it before 12 months. In some cases, it was longer than that. And that's because it was all financially driven from the corporate side of the employer, not because I didn't want to do it. It wasn't about me, right? And so I think that that's the thing here. When we start to look at where somebody's from and what they do, right? And kind of the different stories associated with that. The H-1B in its original intent, while it is dual intent, was meant to be high-skilled temporary foreign worker, not necessarily 70% from India. It just wasn't. But the integrators figured out how to game the system and flood it with multiple applications. And so that's why you saw this explosion. But the other thing, too, is and, and one thing that India does very well, is that they begin training on technology at a very young age. Mm -hmm. And so, whereas here in the United States, we're doing, you know, English literature from mid 14th century, right? <laughs> and, you know, there, there is more focus on the arts. And I think that that's where, where the, the difference becomes is that at a young age, technology drives success in the Indian culture. And so, whereas here, the American culture just wants it to work, doesn't care how. And so mm -hmm. I think that that's, to me, kind of where the, the line of, of demarcation is. And unfortunately, there is systemic racism associated towards Indian nationals. It's a small group. It's a very far right group, but it is out there 100%. It's out there. You can find it. And it's ugly. And I don't like it. And I will continue to speak out against it. Yeah, absolutely. 100% right to do so. Yeah. So, uh, Ramakrishna, thank you. I, I, I don't think Rama has missed a live stream, Christine, since I've started doing these. Uh, literally, I think he's made every Stamp It Out that I've done and every H1B Guy Live unedited and unscripted. I've had the chance to talk with him a few times. Just a really great guy. So, Ramakrishna asked if diversity is a problem, then why not have the country cap on H1B? That would ease the, the backlog. You want to take a shot at this? Because I definitely have an opinion on, I mean, on this one. Why have so, the capital? Or so what he what he's talking about here is he is talking about having a country cap 
on H1Bs. Oh, so right. For, to match, to match. Correct. Absolutely. And there's a, there is a, a very much a small growing sentiment towards this. It's becoming yeah, I, very popular. Why, why would you, and not fool is the wrong word, but why would you put more and more people into this insane backlog? Because I guess for folks who don't understand this, the green cards are limited to a certain number for each country. And seven seven percent yeah. country cap quota annually. Exactly. And and that is, you know, those numbers don't get updated very often. But at the same time, the visas that allow you to come to the US are not capped. And so you wind up with this insane imbalance where, you know, because there are so many um immigrants coming from certain countries over others on skills-based visas, uh, mm -hmm. you then wind up with this with this insane backlog because these aren't limited, these are. Um, you know, I, with this question, I, I would actually question this idea when we say that diversity is a problem because it is, the country caps are applied to work-based green cards. Yeah, employment-based preference, right? Other green cards. Right. There's I mean, there's a diversity lottery, but that's, you know, a tiny percentage, right? But there's no such cap on on family-based visas. So mm. there's something, you know, there's something very inconsistent here. There's no cap, but they are listed in the visa bulletins every month, mm -hmm. um, some of the family-based preferences, because mm -hmm. there are certain countries that have more requests than than others. So they, they are... By the way, that they that they define the categories eligible for green for for the green card lottery. Um, yep. I know this because you know some countries appear on some years and disappear on others based on how many immigrants are coming in. So it feeds mm -hmm. it, doesn't limit it. So I find it a little bit odd when people, you know, talk about restricting based on country of origin for that twelve percent, and yet it, claiming that it's because of diversity, and yet yeah. don't that same principle to the other 70 percent i don't that tells me it's not actually about diversity yeah no i think that that you're right i'm not in favor at least right now of uh quota on country caps for h1bs um i think that that kind of goes against what the h1b original intention was mm -hmm. but i also go back to I understand the numbers and I understand where the primary bulk of lottery applications are coming from. Mm -hmm. I will say that this new rule around the lottery and the wage is something that may have an impact on that. So I think we'll see a significant reduction in the 2022 fiscal year um, cap cases. So, mm -hmm. um, but right now, I, I think if we want to ease the backlog it goes back to some sort of ead with advanced parole i called it the h1ba ead i've refer seen it referred to as the i-140 ead let's give all of these individuals an employment base a green card backlog these advanced parole rights and then begin to eliminate th th that backlog right those that are in ead to permanent residency and have some sort of new merit-based system implemented, right? But that that's All just backlog, total, <laughs> a total visionary, right? And and probably pretty far out there. But um, so this comes in from uh, Sunith, uh Sony says, hey there, 
if someone has a cap exempt H-1B, then how practical is it to expect a cap subject employer to apply for H-1B in March? Hope it gets picked up and wait till October when it kicks in. I've come across this a good bit. Uh, so, Christine, I'll just kind of explain to you Go what this is. So a, uh, a cap exempt H-1B is someone that's working for like a nonprofit organization. Okay, um, so a U.S. Um, medical facility, right? That may be nonprofit, um, a university, uh, or a research research institute of some sort. Um, yeah. So these are not subject to the cap, meaning they don't have to go into the lottery. They can be requested. They don't require the. They don't fall under the sixty-five thousand or twenty thousand advanced degree numbers. Um, I've come across this a good bit where folks are working as like data scientists in a research institute, um, but they really want to work sort of in private, the private sector. And so what happens is, is that they'll begin to shop right now. And I don't mean shop as a negative thing here, Sanish. Um, I just, I want to be honest with you, um, but shop as in uh, um, looking for an employer who's willing to sponsor them in the lottery. Right. Mm -hmm. And so really, I mean, any employer can sponsor anyone for an H-1B, whether you're here in the U.S. working in a different status or outside the U.S. If you uh, qualify based on the requirements of the job. Right. And that there's an offer letter and there's several other things that are associated with it. But I'm just going to assume um, that that Sanish here is a research data scientist. So if you were to find a private um, employer, a private institute that'd be willing to sponsor you, you can continue to work under your cap exempt. And if you're selected in the 2022 lottery, your change of status then would take place um, beginning in October 1st of, of 2021. So it's definitely possible. Um, it's not common. I don't see it a lot, but it's, it's definitely possible. So make sure you have a really good lawyer. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And, uh, it, right? and all your inner and exit documents and offer letters and, um, education evaluations and all of that. It's all very important and part of the process. Um, so, uh, Vishnu had a quick uh, follow-up here, um, just saying, uh, oh, sorry, let's see. Will the next lottery go, will the next lottery going to random lottery or merit-based one? He's referring to for, for H-1B here. Um, yeah. And he says that if it is merit-based, since the company I'm working for was a mid-tier one, it will be very difficult for the company to pay huge salaries. Yeah, I think this is what the outcry has been, is it's really now what it, appears to me and the way I'm interpreting this is that your employer would submit your case electronically. They're going to designate your compensation and that it's no longer going to be about random selection. It's they're going to take the top 60,000 salaries being offered. That's the way I'm interpreting it. Um, so I think, yeah, this is definitely going to present a challenge for a lot of the mid-tier middlemen, third party, court to court type that are out there um, because ultimately they're not paying top dollar. They're not paying bottom dollar either. They still have to pay at or above a prevailing wage determination. And if you're level two or level three, you're probably 75,000 or up depending on your MSA. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think this is the thing about the H-1B IFR and the wage rule and then the lottery announcement that came out that really has 
everyone in this huge tizzy because you're talking about just the inflation of the wage levels mm -hmm. so much higher than what even their American peers are making. And so it just really becomes mind boggling when you look at, at how significantly increased those wage levels were. Um, and, but and yet, go ahead. Sorry, this Christine. Is, this was one of the um, uh, executive orders or linked to an executive order, correct? So Correct, yeah. Uh, and this is, this is where it becomes a funny political question because by all, by all accounts, um, President-elect Joe Biden wants to um, rescind a lot of the Trump-era immigration executive orders, but this is not on the list. This isn't a priority. So, as much as I'm sure we can expect, you know, travel bans uh, to 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 be um, lifted uh, and and sort of you know the the issues that students are having that that that's going to be solved. There, there will be things that that President-elect Biden won't change. I don't, and I don't know about this one because, as I said, merit-based immigration is just not on, on not on well, the list. I think what Vishnu is referring to with the merit term here is the compensation selection yeah. process, right? right? Yeah. And I think that that hey, listen, that is a step in that direction. If we're being honest <laughs> with what that is, right? It is. I mean, I. I think the thing for me that I've been been very vocal about is that of all the H's that I process, we never had a level one work on our W-2. And I can't ever remember a level two. Our wages just were never that low. It just wasn't how it works. So this, this low, cheap labor debate is something that's kind of, <laughs> no pun intended, foreign to me because it wasn't really a factor um, in, in terms of, of how we process cases. So, um, so Javier asks, can I apply for H-1B on overstay tourist visa? Thanks, Javier. Um, Javier, I would tell you that if you want to apply for an H-1B in the fiscal year um, 2022 lottery, I would exit the U.S. before you began that process. So what I mean by that is that I would have your employer's offer letter state a date that we're after your exit of the U.S., um, I would have any payroll determinations, any document evidence, anything like that. I would do that after you vacated the U.S. If you're currently here um, on an overstay, which unfortunately is illegal. Um, do not break <laughs> the law. No. And, and if your case is selected by random selection or based on your merit compensation, a request for further evidence is 100% undoubtedly in your future, and you won't be able to meet the evidence requirements. And so you basically have wasted a lot of time and money. So my advice to you is if you want to take that approach, um, is to plan to exit the U.S. and then begin that process while you're outside of the U.S. And if you're selected, then your visa can be processed in consular processing. And it makes it nice, smooth, clean, and easy for you, if it really is that easy. It's not, but it will definitely help to, to clean it up. But to Christine's point, do not do anything illegal as it comes to uh, Department of Homeland Security and USCIS, because they do not play around with that. Absolutely. Yeah. Follow um, yep. Yeah, yep. Yeah, follow the rules. So just kind of a follow up here from Ramakrishna. He says, uh, thanks for the my question. Um, how can we resolve G 
GC backlog. Not that I'm for country cap on H1B. Sorry for framing my my question properly. Um, so I think what he's he's wanting to know here is how do they solve? How do we solve the green card backlog um, for country cap quotas and employment based preferences uh, versus he's we were talking about the H1B quota, which still was a great topic and, and point to make. Um, yeah, I mean, I think when you you look at it, and we've talked about Senate Bill S386 ad nauseum here on this channel. I know we have it today with Christine, but um, as I've said, there's very few days for it to come back up in the remaining 2020 session. I think it will die this year. Um, but I am aware of several ag advocacy groups that are currently working behind the scenes. Um, and if it is not, they're, they're not holding out hope on S386, but if for some reason it were to die, I would expect something to be introduced in May or June of 2021 session. At least that's what I'm hearing. So, um, Javier said, when uh, H1B is pending, can I wait for a decision in U.S. on overstayed tourist visa? So I think what he's asking here is if he has his application selected, but it's still pending um no because anything that you do on an overstay is gonna require consular processing to have your visa stamped and approved so again going back to and, and i don't mean this to be negative but you, if you are on an overstay you are in the u.s illegally um or if you know someone who is not assuming that it's you maybe we're talking about a friend of yours um if you're doing so it's still going to require consular processing your change of status cannot be done while you're in the u.s um, let's see, uh, uh, Chetan uh, Tande asks, will the H-1B wage rule survive litigation by H-1B lottery for next year, 2022? I don't know. I mean, I, I have a very strong feeling that we could see some sort of injunction ruled. Um, I think that the wage levels in the, the, the Department of Labor statistics that were used were significantly inflated. I think that we'll see evidence provided that shows that, but I do expect some sort of wage rule increase. Mm -hmm. Christine, any thoughts on that? No, that sounds right. I mean, that is, you know, to your earlier point, to the extent that there is a move towards a sort of economics value-based perspective on, uh, on H-1Bs, um, then that would probably be it. Um, trying to make it so that, you know, the higher the salary, the, the higher the likelihood. Mm -hmm. uh, so I would expect if anything sticks, it, it would be that in some and, and I think you made a great point for those that are still with us. We have over 20 uh, folks joining us. That's a new record here on the H1B guy channel. So it just took you, Christine, for us to get there. But Christine, <laughs> you make a great point. And I think the, the, the point here is that um, if there is some sort of change, be prepared for what that means for you, right? Yeah. Because everyone's case is different um, and the way that will impact everyone is different. And so that's, that's, a, that's a great point. Um, uh, Sanish, um, you know, Christine <laughs> says, hey, your guest was on point. I do work in data science research and exploring CAP H1B01 or EB1 options, which listen, we've hit on O1, we've hit on the EB, EB1 today, and we've discussed H1B at nauseum. 
that's why you come to the H1B guy channel here on YouTube. And as Christine said, listen, I think that's one of the things that makes me unique. It's my ability to understand the employer perspective, but also to know the individual perspective and the immigration attorney perspective on all of this. I've seen a lot of cases and a lot of them just are so far out there. How do we figure it out? Right. And so it really is. I just love to problem solve and make these guesses because I've seen it and it's your situation is not unique. It's not. And uh, there's, there's a lot of folks. It's, I always say November 1st, my phone used to start blowing up with people calling me, asking me, are you doing any HCAP lottery cases for next fiscal year? And that's it, it consistently starting in November is, is when it would begin. So, um, Christine, we only have a couple more and then we're going to wrap up. So thank you for, for all your time. What, uh, uh, Chetan says wage-based selection better instead of lottery PhD with high salary do not get H1B, but low salary people with luck do. It is funny that H1B spouses get H4 EAD, but not talented O1 visa holder dependent. Um, great. More paradoxes in this. Check, 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 check. I mean, uh, yeah, Chet, you're exactly right. And I think, um, uh, Christine, you talked about this this earlier when we were, were talking about very little immigration reform kind of through President Bush and President Obama's administrations. But one of the big things Obama did do in the executive order was that H4 EAD, which has been hotly debated and the topic of conversation through the Trump administration. I was a big proponent of the H4 EAD when it initially came out because it had some some real value to it. The problem was is that a lot of spouses that had been here in the U.S. hadn't worked for two, three, and four years. So what that created is almost like an entry-level type W-2 resource that flooded the market. Um, I think that was back in 2015, if I believe, May 2015 timeframe. Um, but yeah, I mean, you, we've talked about the O-1 and what that means, right? Researchers, we talked about the arts and things. Is, is that being sort of merit? Maybe that's the direction that we go with the, the merit designation. I'm not sure. Um, but the PhDs are, are a big one, right? You're talking about high salary, well, highly educated, um, and still are just put in this random selection and, and told no year after year. Or they just don't go for it. I was um, speaking to a yeah. friend yesterday who's a neuroscience PhD. Um, we, we went to undergrad at Harvard together and she was applying, looking at a job in, in, in the equities and in finance. And you get to the description of the job and it, you know, they want people with PhDs or PhD MDs, uh, you know, experience in finance. Da, da, da. And then at the end they say, we will not sponsor anybody. Yeah. Basically. Not in those words, obviously, but but they basically, you, you know, you need not apply. Um, so it's not just about whether people will or won't get the H-1Bs, but yeah. whether whether jobs for which they are imminently qualified mm -hmm. will open themselves up to that level of risk. Yep. And Sarah says, how can a student completed master on F-1 visa can apply for the H-1 with new wage level rule? So um, I I'll, I'll take a stab at that one. If you yeah. fresher, <laughs> fresher uh, sounds very British to me. So I don't know, maybe you're, you're yeah, explain that to me because I don't know what that a means. A freshman. Freshman. Okay, got <laughs> well, it. If uh, if uh, you know if you're from this side of the pond, um, yeah. Greetings from the UK. Um, <laughs> but you know, the problem here is a student, no individual can apply for the H one B. And I know yep. maybe that's what we mean. Maybe you mean yep. an employer. 
employer. But an employer who must. So first you have to get the job, then you have to convince your job to get an H-1B, and yep. then you have the lottery for an H-1B. And that's frankly, right. that's why I didn't bother staying after graduation. I went I went to the UK to do my master's there um, because I, I saw my friends go through this and it's a nightmare. So you yeah. can, if you get the job, you can have that job using something called OPT, and then if you're lucky, your employer will file for an H-1B, but not all employers do simply because it's expensive and difficult and it's a bit of a strange kind of political dance. Mm -hmm. Then they have to get it. And then you are, again, I, I don't know where you're from, but then if you actually want to have the freedom to get promoted and change jobs and you know do all the things your American um, classmates do, you need a green mm -hmm. card. And the route mm -hmm. to green card is a whole other nightmare and so so you know to the um the h1b guy asked me at the beginning of the session what advice would i give myself as a 17 yeah. year old you know coming to harvard it would be to not expect that what got me here will keep me here um mm -hmm. so i would i would arm you know go see a lawyer um mm -hmm. consider other countries and other options and exit options um and then i would really really think about the trade-off i'm going to make and if you want to understand a little bit better what the what the employer dance looks like, um, my my buddy William Hahn, who went to Yale, wrote a, his own story um, and focused a fair amount on how delicate a dance it is with your employer because you know, mm -hmm. you're at, entirely at their request. You cannot apply for an H one B as an individual. Right. right. Yeah, and I, um, it, it's funny that that you say that because it is employer driven, and I'm going to guess Sarath maybe from India originally. Um, and you know, you look at, okay, once you graduate, let's say with an advanced U S masters, you go into the OPT and then OPT STEM, that's, you basically have 12 to 36 months to go to work for an employer and convince them to sponsor your H1B. If you're from India, that is the process. Otherwise you come here, you get your degree and you leave. I mean, that really is what it comes down to. It is. And, and that's the cycle. So um, Javier, no problem. Glad we could answer your question. Thank you for joining us. Uh, Saraf had one more where he says, will the new wage level rules be applied for H-1B cap exemption applications? So my answer to that question is yes, because you still go through the same process for cap exempt, which is there's an LCA, there's a prevailing wage determination. So all of those wage levels are determined um, at, at during that portion of the process through the labor condition application that's certified by the Department of Labor. So yeah, I believe that that until there's an injunction um, that restricts the current wage levels, yes, that will definitely be the case. So that was all the questions, Christine, that we got on YouTube. That was a lot. Thank you. I know that went a little longer than than we oh, uh, had, had originally discussed. I'm just so glad to, to have you do that, the Q&A rapid fire with me. I just really appreciate it. Um, before we wrap up, though, I, I just want to give you the biggest thank you that, that I can uh, for your support, for taking the time to come on this channel. Uh, to chop it up with me for an hour and 45 minutes on U.S. immigration live from London. Uh, guys, I know Christine's had some some uh, uh, visual um, 
with her uh, with her camera, a little little grainy here, kind of towards the the last twenty minutes or so. But it's mm -hmm. not no fault of hers. She is in London. We are not paid to do this, so uh, you know we are at the mercy of technology. But I know her audio was good. Um, I heard it the entire time. And uh, one one more from from chat says H four E eighty existing means lobbying works as there is a large population of H one Bs. Maybe there are not uh, too many O one for people to lobby for. You know, I, I think that you make a great point, Chet, and I've talked about this power in numbers, your power in numbers with your voices, with your assembly, and with your money. And if you can do those, you can influence American politics, no matter whether you're a voter or you live in the district. Remember that you are a constituent, even if you're not a voter. Uh, and then Ramakrishna thanks, says thanks for all the hard work. Um, but I just wanted to get back to you, Christine. I just, I love talking to you. I think that uh, you and I share a lot of similar ideals. Your story, as I said, is one that that makes me angry. I'm glad we got to talk about it and today. Um, you and I have been talking about kind of what may be next for you and I in the future. I look forward to more conversations around that. I, I generally appreciate your interaction and support through the social media channels. And I'm just so glad we could we could get together here today. And then just from the bottom of my heart, thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having me on. And I'm just thrilled to see, you know, an, an American um, who really cares and, and wants to do something about this and dedicates their time to it. So thank you for having me on. Awesome. And I, Go ahead and you can follow Christine um, on Twitter. That's at C-M-I-K-O-L-A-J-U-K. Uh, um, you can connect with her on LinkedIn as well. Um, you can find her there. I'll, I'll, uh, I'll have the link. Um, I'll put her uh, LinkedIn profile in the description as well. Um, links to her article on Medium. If you haven't, go read her story. Um, there is also a link on her story to her friend William Hahn's story that's on Vox, um, where he makes a lot of great points um, that I think are, are very mind thought provoking. Uh, and also in the description, I'll include her link to the video from her interview uh, that was on Tucker Carlson back in February of, of 2019. Um, Christina, I just wanted to kick it over to you. Anything before we wrap up? Well, I just and thank everybody for who who came in to watch and for your questions. Um, and if there's one message that I would like to convey is to tell your stories as much as um, getting yourself out there, you know, may not mean anything for your individual situation. The more people tell their stories, the more hard it is to ignore. Uh, and I found that, you know, given all the controversy right now, there's a window of opportunity to uh, help more Americans understand what's going on. And when they're confronted with the facts and the numbers and, and just how absurd a lot of this is, it, it can get them to care and, and, and get them to vote and get them to be active on this, um, whether as uh, whether as voters or as employers. So, you know, I just really encourage you to get your stories out there. It can be self-published, it can be anonymous, um, whatever you need. And I'm always happy to edit. Um, so please do consider getting your stories out there because <laughs> everyone's story is worth telling and, and worth reading. Yeah, and that's a, a great sort of cue here. Uh, I think I mentioned to you this earlier, um, not on the stream, but when we were talking about the the, the Stamp It Out Q&A interview series 
was one of the very first ideas I had when I was conceptualizing, okay, I'm going to do a blog. I'm going to do a YouTube channel. What kind of content am I going to put out there? And this, the Stamp It Out series was one of those. So if you'd like to engage with me, come on and tell your story potentially at a future date on one of the Stamp It Out Q&As, please reach out to me. I'd love the chance for you and I to speak and see if, if it makes sense. Um, but with that being said, we'll go ahead and wrap this up. I'd like to ask you, if you haven't already, please like this video. Uh, please subscribe to the H1B Guy channel here on YouTube and click the bell for notifications. I just want to say thank you. We broke streaming records here today on the channel. Christine, thank you for that. Uh, if you've made it this far, I just really appreciate your support. Thank you for me. Thank you for Christine from, from really the bottom of my heart. Just really appreciate it. The H1B guy, your global source for all things H1B.